Hey guys, it's Heaven from Just a Grown True Crime, and today I'm going to be telling you about this app called Anchor. It helped me start my podcast, and it can help you start yours. Anchor is a free app that lets you use it from your phone or your computer. So if you want to do it on the go, and you want to just record, you can record one. Anchor will also distribute your podcast for you on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and so much more to get your own podcast out there. You can make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you want in just one podcast. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I did. What are you waiting for? Hey guys, welcome back to Just a Girl on True Crime. I'm your host, Heaven, and tonight we are talking about the final part of Thomas Warren Wentzheim. And if you haven't listened to the first part, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it so you know what we're talking about and you have an overview of what we you missed in the first case or part one. I don't know why I said, I guess case works too. Um, So let's do a quick overview. We talked about how his mother was super crazy and had this very weird relationship with him. And we talked about the murders and a little bit of the part one appeal. Tonight we're going to be talking about the rest of the appeals and the habeas corpus. So I really hope you enjoy. And if I sound better, it's because I bought a microphone. So I just listened to a, um, I just listened to it because I normally did it through my phone. And boy, did I sound rough. So with that being said, we have a lot to cover in a short amount of time. And I'm just going to hop into it. So let's start where we left off. So a man named Claude Claude Brown testified that he was a psychiatrist who had practiced in Mobile County for 26 years. Brown graduated in Tulane Medical School in 1945 and spent three years specializing in psychiatric at the Meninger Foundation in Topeka, Kansas. Concurrently, Brown was an associate professor at the University of South Alabama Medical School in the psychiatric department. Brown further testified to membership in numerous professional organizations, and he was certified by an American Specialty Board of Psychiatric and Neurology. Brown's articles in psychiatric have appeared in approximately one dozen professional journals. Additionally, Brown listed many other duties and activities he had undertaken in the field of psychiatric, which are too numerous to list here. Brown became involved in Thomas's case when Thomas was ordered to Syracuse Hospital for psychiatric examination and evaluation. Brown and two other psychiatrists, Kimbrough and Rudder, were appointed appointed by Dr. J.E. Condom. No lie, that's that person's name. Nothing wrong with that. The superintendent of the hospital to form a lunacy commission to thoroughly evaluate Thomas. On three occasions, Brown interviewed Thomas at the hospital. Additionally, Brown reviewed available records concerning Thomas, which included police statements, photographs relating to the murders, military service records, records of imprisonment, and social service reports of interviews with the family by social workers. These records were Supplemented by by psychology reports, further social work data, and reports of day-to-day contact with Thomas from onward asides. In a total, Brown spent 30 hours approximately evaluating Thomas. For those hours, I'm sorry, four of those hours were spent in actual interviews with Thomas. For Thomas to basically leave the hospital, Brown saw him again like an hour at the Mobile County Jail. 
In summary, Brown testified that Thomas was aware of the murders he had committed, and they occurred when Thomas was not under the influence of any drugs or in an impaired state. However, Thomas had no idea why he was doing such things. Thomas consistently expressed anxiety about his family and a desire to see his wife and child. Thomas was reared in a home that was marked a abnormal one. His home was one in which women ran the show, particularly his mother, who was the dominant figure in the family home, and his father, like we said before, was non-existent and, you know, a non-entity, a cast down and a cast out, literally as well as figuratively. Brown viewed the father, like I said, as a non-existent functional male model, and Thomas viewed himself as receiving the same treatment as did his father that is the subject of contempt of being a non-entity. As Thomas grew up, he was by all accounts shy, relatively a reserved person, and had a few friends. He had no girlfriends, and Thomas remained extensively dominated by his mother and was early in trouble. Brown described the purse-snatching episodes as more than a simple robbery, being aggressive, ripping away something valuable, valuable of a woman's. Brown considered this is an anonymous symptom and then recounted Thomas's unprovoked assault upon a WAF when Thomas was in the Air Force. For this, Thomas remained in a penitentiary, penitentiary for seven years where on one occasion he threatened a female teacher in one of the prison's um, scholastic programs. At one point, Thomas Thomas related to Brown that he was approximately 12 years old when he was assaulted by two older girls. These girls threatened to castrate Thomas if he did not have intercourse with them. While Brown did not consider this incident to be the definite source of his problem, he did think that Thomas's relation to the story adds to and conforms to him his picture of the world. So he's basically seeing the world that women rule the world and I guess whatever they say goes. Thomas also told Brown that he had not had sexual relations prior to his marriage, and that his sexual relations with his wife were good. However, Thomas's wife had become fearful of him following an episode with the suicide note and strangulation shortly before the birth of his first child. Thomas purchased a pistol, fearing that his wife might be assaulted while he was away at work. Following the birth of the child, Thomas became preoccupied, complaining of very vague physical pains and saying his head didn't feel like it was there at times. Thomas also had little interest in sexual relations with his wife and the relationship became aloof. Brown considered the timing of the murders of the three women to be in specific reference to his wife giving birth to their first child. You know, because when you have a first child, or any child, they do tell you, you know, don't have sex for six weeks because you're very fertile and you can be pregnant again. I can't tell you how many times my OB stressed that when I was pregnant with my kids. Anyway, the first, oh, I'm sorry, I read that. The second in the same month that his wife told him she was pregnant again and the third on the night of his child's first birthday. Further, Brown emphasized the repetitive patterns of attacks and increasing violence against women since Thomas was 14 years of age. Thomas' development as a child was abnormal, rooted in a miserable relationship with his mother. Brown considered that each murdered woman represented to Thomas a direct and substitute for his mother. The lack of a proper male model in the family prevented Thomas from 
growing away from the dependent fixation upon his mother. Thomas became a person intensely fearful of the world at large. The purpose of the murders, Brown concluded, was to prevent that Thomas perceived to be his own destruction, a fear which he kind which he kindled by his own wife's pregnancy and childbirth. Thomas further explained the purpose of the mutilation of the bodies of the last two victims, saying that the answer lay at several levels. The amputation of the breast. This is might be a little trigger warning because I just read the next thing. The cutting of the vagina and slicing the stomach amounted to remove remount, amounted to removal of gender identification. That is, Thomas made his victims not female anymore. On an, another level, the mutilations represented an infantile regression desire to be part of the female body again. As to a diagnosis of Thomas's disease, Brown classified him as a severe schizo personality and marked paranoid traits with the traits of necrosadism. I think I pronounced that right. I've never heard that before. And that is, um, you know, basically destructive and a destructive act with bodies that are dead. It, in Brown's opinion, Thomas was afflicted with a mental disease, and, you know, he did know right from wrong. However, when he killed Peyton, he had, he had so lost the power to select right from wrong because of the, you know, mental disease that his ability of his ability to prevent himself from killing her was destroyed. On cross-examination, Brown testified that he knew of no treatment program with any reasonable expectation of helping him. If Thomas had had not been apprehended after Miss Payton was killed, Brown testified, it was probable that he would have become more violent and committed more murders in a shorter period of time. Dr. Brown's testimony concluded the case for the defense, and the defense rested. The state then proceeded to produce evidence in rebuttal. A man named Danny Wren testified that he was employed as a ship fitter in Inglas Ship Building in Pasaglugla, Mississippi. I hope I said that town right. I think so, because I pronounced it out, but I'm not sure. (laughs) Thomas worked in Wren's crew at the yard over a two-year period. When Thomas was arrested, you know, Danny believed that Thomas was incapable of such acts. Thomas having, you know, to appear completely normal to him, in Danny's opinion, Thomas was not insane, and Danny's testimony was followed by that of four other of Thomas's co-workers, each have never observed him act abnormally and thought he was very sane. So you see this with people like murderers and stuff. Um, They can portray themselves as one way but behind closed doors they act completely different and no one really knows chris watts i'm talking to you so a woman named mary fern raimundo 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 testified that she and her husband lived in ivory Iver- Iver- iverington alabama where they knew Thomas and his wife, and they actually had visited their home. Mary considered the, you know, family to be a very happy, happy couple and never knew um, Thomas to act abnormally. James, her husband, who also testified, shared his wife's opinion. A, another woman named Kathleen testified that she and her husband were 
you know, Thomas and his wife's closest friends often visiting each other on social occasions. And Kathleen thought that the family's marriage was a good one. Though Thomas and his wife argued a little bit, Thomas never appeared to be insane, deranged, or high-tempered um, to Kathleen. On October 16th in 1976, Kathleen and her husband attended Thomas's daughter's birthday party where Thomas appeared to be as usual as he normally was. Jack, her husband, who also testified, you know, like I said, shared the wife, shared the opinion of his wife, but further identified the .32 caliber pistol as a weapon that he sold to Thomas before his first child was born. Jack also identified the knife in evidence as being of the kind that Thomas carried. A man named Preston Arthur testified that he had been a United States a United States probation and parole officer for two years assigned to the mobile division, and Thomas's was Thomas was one of the cases Arthur was assigned to supervise, and Thomas reported to Arthur monthly. In Arthur's opinion, Tom was no different from any other 29-year-old criminal. Henry Frank Skinner testified that he worked as a general practitioner of medicine at the hospital he was in, and Skinner ran a physical examination of Thomas on the day after his admission to the hospital, and he found no physical problems. In his own opinion, Thomas was very sane. Elvin Harper testified also that he worked as an aide at the hospital and that he had um, had opportunities on a daily basis to observe Thomas and carry on conversations with him. And Harper considered Thomas, once again, to be a sane man. W.D. Little testified that he was a security officer at the hospital where he observed Thomas on a daily basis. And right again, guys, Thomas appeared saying too little. A man named James testified that he was a psychiatrist and an assistant superintendent at the hospital. And he finished medical school at the University of Alabama in 1952 and interned at the University Hospital in Birmingham, Alabama. Afterwards, James engaged in general practice for 17 years until he was trained in the psychiatric at University Hospital beginning in 1971. James then taught at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa in the College of Community Health Science to residents in family practice. James saw Thomas for approximately five hours on four or five separate occasions. Additionally, James reviewed Thomas's case history 10 to 12 hours, and Kim agreed with Rudder Brown and diagnosed Thomas with a schizo personality with paranoid, you know, all that features, and a epistotic. Discontrol. In discussing Thomas's development, James would not have forwarded any thesis to make um, thesis as to take nature of the purse snatching incident, saying that he did not have sin- sufficient information to make such a judgment. James did testify that a chaotic childhood coupled with fear and some helplessness on the part of the purse-snatching victim would make Thomas aware of needs which had gone unmet. That is, need of an outlet of hostilities and seeing someone controlled. Thomas did not remember these episodes when interviewed by James. James would not comment on Brown's psychiatric theory of Thomas's case. However, James agreed that in person, that in that in a person of abnormal personality development, the circumstances of Thomas's wife's pregnancy 
would be the addition of another stressful situation from a standpoint of physical and financial needs. James further testified that Thomas did not have a um, deceased brain, nor was Thomas a schizophrenic, though he exhibited characteristics of the personality. Further, James did not know whether Tom knew right from wrong at the time he murdered Peyton. However, in James' opinion, Thomas possessed the type of external control which would cause Thomas to run away from a situation in which he could be caught. There's a lot of names. Okay, so now we're going to go to the direct appeal after remand. And this is Thomas versus State. After remand, 370 SO.2D1080, defendant was convicted before the circuit court, Mobile County, Beryl D. McRae J. of capital felony rape. One victim was intentionally killed and he appealed. The criminal court's appeal, Tyson J. held that one trial judge did not. Err in denying defendant's motion for funds to employ two named independent psychiatrists of defendant's own choice. Two, trial could trial court properly excuse question jurors from a jury based upon their express expressed opposition to imposition of capital punishment. Three, trial judge did not abuse his discretion in refusing to require sequestration, I don't know if I pronounced it right, like I said, don't come at me, of those jurors who have imposed to death penalty for purpose of allowing defendant's attorney, attorneys to have opportunity to interview them without the president, presence of other jurors. Four, no error occurred when trial Court allowed four prospective jurors who knew or were told that defendant had been previously convicted of offense in which he was being retried to serve as trial errors. Five, trial court did not, in refusing to change jury at penalty phase of trial, that proof beyond reasonable doubt that aggravating circumstances outweighed circumstances must exist before death penalty may be imposed but six prejudicial marks by prosecutor during penalty phase of trial required reversal of sentence received during penalty phase but not for conviction guilty phase affirmed penalty phase reversed and remanded with directions for new sentencing hearing Affirmed in part and remanded in part, Alabama 482SOD21241 on remand, Alabama CRAPP 482SOD2D1246, judgment reversed. Okay. So, in the prosecutor's opening statement at the penalty phase of the trial, the following factual assertions were made. They have used some of 1965 when all of his troubles began. I wrote down, I quoted them. I wrote it down on a legal pad. This is when all of his troubles began. All of his troubles did not begin in 1965. He robbed a blind black lady in Alabama and was able to beat that charge on a technicality. He purse snatched and I think a police lieutenant will tell you about the situation with regards into another homicide in the place he grew up in Alabama. So if three murders and beating someone was close to death is not bad enough, we can see where he started when he was a very young man and has been a career criminal, dangerous, violent person all of his life. No evidence concerning a blind black lady nor a purse snatching, nor another homicide was ever introduced at any phase of Thomas's trial. 
the prosecutor apparently made these references in anticipation of the defense introducing such evidence to demonstrate Thomas's insanity, just as the defense had done at the at Thomas's first trial. No such evidence was introduced by Thomas at the second trial. Neither did the tr- trial court instruct the jury to disregard these remarks as having created error. As this court has previously stated, it has been specifically held that remarks by the prosecutor which accused the defendant of the commission of a crime other than that for which he is on trial and which are unsupported by any evidence in this case require reversal. <clears throat> All right, so that was that one. And now this one is another one with X part with Thomas 555 S O D 235 Alabama 1989 direct appeal after second remand. All right. After remand, 370 SO 2D1080, defendant, you know, was convicted of the capital murder in the court. And the Supreme Court, 482 SD SO 2D14. 1241 affirmed in part and remanded with instructions on remand of the court appeals, affirmed sentence. Sertoria, that's probably wrong, was granted. The Supreme Court reversed and remanded with directions following remand by the Court of Criminals Appeals. Defendant received another sentencing trial and trial court accepted jury's recommendation and sentence defendant to death by electrocution the court of criminal appeals affirmed the defendant petitioned for that c word that i didn't pronounce correctly the supreme court kennedy j held that one judge who presided over the first two sentencing trials was not required by pretrial publicity three veneer member was properly disqualified because of hesitancy to impose the death penalty and four hearsay testimony by victim's mother as to victim's fear because of murders of another convenience store clerk was admissible as declarations of emotion of fear affirmed kennedy justice thomas was convicted you know was convicted and sentenced to death in 1977 for the rape and murder of Sherilyn Payton, which occurred in Mobile County. The facts of the murder are set out in Thomas versus State, and the statement of facts is that that opinion is adopted by this court as if it fully set out herein. Thomas's first trial was conducted in Jefferson County after a motion to change a venue was granted by a trial judge. The Court of Criminal Appeals reversed the conviction because of improper argument by the prosecutor. In 1981, Thomas was retried. I must have retired. This time in Mobile County and was again convicted and he was sentenced to death. The Court of Criminal Appeals Appeals affirmed his conviction but reversed his sentencing because of the prosecutor in his opening statement at the sentencing phase accused Thomas of having committed other crimes, evidence of which had not been introduced during trial. This court then granted cross petitions for that C word that I mispronounced and remanded to the criminal the Court of Criminal Appeals for a determination of whether the prosecutor's remarks were harmless error. Criminal Appeals ruled that the remarks were were harmless errors and thereby affirmed the sentence. On return of remand, this court held that the error caused by the prosecutor's remark was not harmless and remanded the case to the Court of Criminal Appeals. 
with instructions that the case be remanded to the trial for another new sentence after it was remanded by criminal appeals. Thomas received another sentencing trial and the jury recommended that he be given the death penalty. The trial court accepted the juror's recommendation and sentenced Thomas for a third time to death by electrocution. The criminal appeals affirmed the sentence and we, by this opinion, affirm the judgment of the court of criminal appears. And these are, um, Thomas raises these following issues and there's like seven of them. So the first one was, was the judge's refusal to rescue himself a violation of the defendant's constitutional rights? Two, did the trial court commit reversible error by refusing to change the venue of the trial from Noble County? Three, did district, did Attorney General Spiegelman violate the constitutional rights of the defendant when he called a press conference to discuss the case 15 days before the trial? Four, was the trial court in error when it disqualified a member because of her hesitancy to impose the death penalty. Five, did the prosecutor commit reversible error when he referred to the appeals process in closing argument? Six, did the trial court improperly refuse to give the defendant's requested jury instructions on non-statutory circumstances? And seven, did the omission of testimony of the victim's mother violate the defendant's constitutional rights. So now we're going to go one motion to rescue. The Judge McRae presided over the first and second trials, like we did say, and each accepted the jury's recommendation that Thomas had been was supposed to be sentenced to death. The judge also presided over the third sentencing trial. Prior to the third sentencing trial, the judge responds as follows in a motion in Lyman by the defendant regarding the admissibility of certain evidence offered by the state, the court. Yeah, you know, Mr. Dees, you and I have both tried this case a number of times. I think it would be putting a stranglehold on the state that I shouldn't do, and I think it even goes back to your insanity question. The victim in this case, as I recall the evidence, was abducted with evident precision and has he certainly has you has to you you has to you know which an irrational person I do not believe could have formed. But he is he's in the position you're asking me to put the state in the position of not telling the jury the entire story. So I can't do that, so I deny the motion. Based on these remarks, the defendant immediately made a motion for recusal, arguing that he, that the judge had fixed, had a fixed opinion regarding the circumstances of a capital offense committed while the defendant was under the influence of extreme or extreme mental or emotional disturbance. Code 1975 3A 551-2, or a capital offense committed when the defendant could not appreciate the criminality of his conduct or confirm his conduct to the requirements of law in Code 1975, 13A551. The statement by the ju- by the trial judge did not provide grounds for recusal; rather, they occurred in response to a motion by the defendant to prohibit the family of Sherilyn Payton from testifying. His comments were a reflection of his knowledge on the, of the case and reflected no personal enmity to disqualify a judge for bias. The bias must be shown to be personal, and a search of the record reveals no personal bias on the part of the trial judge towards the defendant. In addition, the fact that the trial judge had presided over the defendant's previous two sentencing trials was not grounds for disqualification. A trial judge need not recuse himself solely on the grounds 
that he was the same trial judge who had heard the case and imposed the death penalty in the defendant's prior trial. Change of venue. The the defendant argues that the trial judge committed reversible error by refusing to change the venue of the trial, that for some of the reasons the original trial was moved to Jefferson County from Noble County, this trial should have been moved, and that the high percent percentage of those living in Mobile County were predisposed to favoring the death penalty because of unfavorable favorable publicity in the Mobile area regarding this case. In Code 1975, 1520-1520A states the following, A, any person making charge with a um, indictable within an offense may have his trial removed from to another county on making application to the court setting forth specific reasons why he cannot have a fair and impartial trial trial in the county in which the indictment is found the application application by talk I'm reading a little too fast must be sworn in to buy him and must be made as early as um, before the trial, or it may be after conviction upon the new trial be grant, being granted. To ensure the defendant has a fair and impartial jury, it is not necessary that the members be totally ignorant of the facts surrounding the case. Murphy versus Florida, 421, U.S., 794-799-95-SCT-2031-2035-44-L-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-1-
the sentencing trial, the court allowed the defendant to question the jurors individually about what they knew about the specific facts of the defendant's previous trials. The defendant admits that individual voir dire was allowed, but contends that the court was unduly restrictive in not allowing him to question the jurors about the effect of pretrial publicity on their ability to sentence the defendant in an impartial manner. The jurors were also interviewed in panels of 12. During that process, the defendant was restricted from asking questions about pretrial publicity in front of these 12-member panels. This was done to ensure that these panels would not be tainted by the statements of a single juror. To those who have heard any of the case in the media, the judge then stated this following. Has any member of this jury seen anything about this case on television, read anything about this case in a newspaper or seen or heard anything about this case? If so, please stand. All right, is there any member of this jury who thinks because of the recollection that you have about this case, whether it be from the radio, television, or newspaper, that would be impossible for you to sit as a fair and impartial juror in this penalty stage of this particular case. That is what you have read, what have you seen, what have you heard on television. Would you be any way biased or affect, or would it affect you in any way from rendering a fair and impartial verdict of this case? If you feel like that would, simply raise your hand. Having reviewed the record, we all agree with the Court of Criminal Appeals that the trial court asked all the nece questions necessary to ensure that the jurors would give Thomas a fair and impartial trial. Those jurors who felt like they could not listen um, you know, to the whole thing, those who knew about Attorney General Siegelman's press conference and those who knew that the defendant had received a death penalty in a prior trial were also all excused from, you know, the thing. Therefore, we agree with the Court of Appeals, Criminal Appeals, that the defendant had a fair and impartial jury and that the trial court was correct in refusing to change the venue of the trial. And now we're going to talk about the prosecution's closing arguments. The defendant argues that the prosecutor in his closing arguments improperly minimized the jury's sense of responsibility for, <clears throat> for determining the appropriate appropriateness of the death sentence by arguing the following. They have, told, they have told you he had helped law enforcement and you saw the FBI agent on there, Mr. Boyle. What did he actually tell you? He actually told you that he gets all this about his about the center starting because of Thomas. He actually told you that he got a letter from the FBI at headquarters finding us and what was the criteria. The criteria is he's got four murders and his appeals are exhausted. Well, his appeals aren't exhausted. He talks to Mr. Deeds and he talks to Tommy or Thomas, Mr. Deeds said. Thomas made the decision, made it himself, but he did make the decision. And he says he couldn't have anything to gain. He didn't have anything to gain. He's in this courtroom right now trying to get you to consider that he was aware this hearing was coming up. That means Thomas himself knows he had something to gain and that he had something to gain by doing it. And he, with good common sense, decided to do it. Now, Mr. Boyle told you that after they filled out the questionnaire, they sent it off, and he's never heard from it again. He didn't tell you about this big foundation was started because of that. He didn't tell you some center was started because of that, but he did tell you something that was significant as to why Thomas would appear and answer that questionnaire, and also given a deposit deposition in court in that civil case. He enjoyed the attention. He hadn't talked to anybody for a while. He liked folks, folks making a fuss over him. The state condemns that this was not attempting to minimize the jury's role in the capital sentence process 
but was responding to the following arguments by the defendant that the jury should find Thomas Thomas's participation in an FBI study study of multiple murders to be a circumstance. Secondly, we are talking about the fact that Thomas has done something since he has been in prison that you can consider as a valid circumstance that he has made an effort to help law enforcement when he dealt with the FBI. And you heard the FBI's testimony. Now let's talk about Thomas helping law enforcement. You heard the FBI agent say, first of all, that he is not an expert and he couldn't tell you whether Thomas was sane or insane. He said, I'm not no psychiatrist. He said, and acted like a rational man when I was talking to him. Well, nobody doubts that, but that's a red herring. If you believe him acting like a rational man makes a difference. Thomas gave F- gave evidence in 1982, six hours of interview at the National Center for Violent Crime. And you heard the FBI agent tell you whether, tell you how important it was. You know what? You know how Thomas was caught? Think about how important it was. Thomas was caught because he went back to the scene. Now let's just suppose his reports and the evidence that he gave and let's say the mobile police department came up on a mutilated body like this. They fed it to the computer real quick and they tied it to the National Center for the Prevention of Violent Crimes and they popped it back and they said, there's something, there's some things here you need to think about. They'll tell a few, and one of them was he'll probably return to the scene because they would have put that that cut on the body while it was dead. Did you know? Do you know what the first murder of Miss Um Hyatt and Miss Payton would still be? All they had to do was stake out the scenes, and that. That's what's that. What the purpose of the program is to find out what these people do, and that's why it's valuable. Now, Thomas, are you... Now, Tommy, are you going to penalize Tommy now because he participated in a program and say, well, that's self-serving. He did what he did to help himself. You didn't hear the FBI agent say that Tommy didn't have to do it. He participated in that, and hopefully it will mean something and hopefully they will later come and they will be able to come back and get some information for Tommy from Tommy later because you heard the FBI agent say that the study wasn't complete and I asked him the question on that tape. I said Dr. I, I mean I said Agent Boyle, now suppose you find out some information from that one guy and find out from some, find out some from another, and you need to go re-interview somebody. He said, it's possible. And Dr. Brown and Dr. Kimber said, we need more information from Thomas. I'll tell you, if he's alive 10 years from now, other patents may have been saved because you, you can see that the mobile police department found a dead body that had been cut on in the FBI the first thing that center would tell them, stake out the scenes. Mr. Thomas would be long. We wouldn't have this trial. So he'd be basically long gone. And we wouldn't have this trial and Miss Payton would be alive. It is clear that the state was responding to the defendants participating in the FBI survey rather than attempting to minimize the jury's sense of responsibility. A, cr- a criminal conviction is not to be lightly overturned on the basis of a prosecutor's comment standing alone for the statements or conducted must be viewed in context. Only by doing can it be determined whether the prosecutor's conduct affected the fairness of the trial. As the court, as the county, I'm sorry, as the Court of Criminal Appeal, Appeals pointed out, the prosecutor was attempting to point out that this, that Thomas did not fit the pri- proper criteria for the FBI study, and thus his cooperation was self-serving, and that it may be considered as non-statutory circumstances on appeal. 
we agree and they agree with the criminal appeals on finding that the prosecution's arguments were not improper. All right. Ooh. All right. Requested jury instructions. The judge gave this gave the following instructions to the jury regarding non-statutory circumstances in addition to the circumstances I have just read to you. You may also consider that the circumstances of the capital offense, which tend to indicate that the defendant should not be sentenced to death. This includes that the includes but is not intended to anything that happened to the defendant before he committed the crime, the capital offense that indicates or tends to indicate that he should not be sentenced to death. Circumstances also include but are not limited to any conduct or behavior of the defendant. I lost my place. Oh, of the defendant since the time of the capital murders, which indicates or tends to indicate that he should be not sentenced to death. Circumstances also include, but are not limited to any aspects of the defendant's mental or emotional condition at the time of the crime, which indicates or tends to indicate that the defendant should have should be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole instead of death. The circumstances does not have to be included in the list which I've read to you in order for you to consider in order for it to be considered by you. The law of the state recognizes that it is possible in at least some situations for a large number of aggravating circumstances to be outweighed by one or a few circumstances. In other words, the law contemplates that different circumstances may be given different ways, weights or values in determining what sentence is to be given in a particular circumstance of light. Of all the other circumstances in this case, you must do that in the process of weighing in aggravating circumstances or circumstances against in order to determine a proper sentence. Um, you know, and the trial court's instructions satisfied the requirements of Tucker. Therefore, they did find the trial court did not commit an error by denying the defendant's request jury selection. I mean, instruction. So, stuff by the victim's mother. We can, we can touch base on this. Real quick. Um, paint. Cheryl's mom testified that her daughter had turned in her resignation on the day she was murdered because she, um, because of the fear she felt. And the defend, defend, defendant argues that the trial court committed error in admitting in her mom's testimony because he argues. The testimony was not relevant to any aggravating circumstances pro-offered by the state and was immiscible hearsay, and the trial court admitted the mother's testimony based on the following reason. In section the section 131168 aggravating circumstance does exist. The defendant did not suddenly kill Peyton without having an opportunity without ha her having an opportunity to suffer. The anticipation of her death at the hands of a murder. Instead, the defendant abducted her. He drove her to the isolated spot because it was raining. He raped her in the cab of his pickup truck so he would not get wet. He marched the terrified victim out to the truck and he shot her to death. Peyton knew that two female convenience store clerks in Mobile had been murdered in the preceding year. She knew that more recent victims have been abducted and that she and that after she had been killed her her body had been mutilated Peyton was afraid that she too would be abducted and murdered she was being abducted as she was being taken to an isolated spot as she was being raped and as she was taken from the defendant's truck Peyton was terrified she had 
reason to know that she was going to die long before long before the defendant actually killed her. Considering all the circumstances, this capital offense was especially heinous and cruel. The heinousness and cru- cruelty in this capital offense exceeded by far that which is present in every capital offense. In order for a tr- court, trial court to find the murder was heinous and cruel, the crime must be of such nature uh, pitless or unnecessarily torturous to the victim. And everything like that. In addition, the statements made by the victim's mother, although they were hearsay, were admissible because they were declarations of the emotion of fear. C. Gamble, Mick Elroy's Alabama evidence in the trial in the trial court, therefore, was correct in admitting the testimony of her mother. So, conclusion. Um, they basically said. That the defendant was under, you know, no mental or emotional disturbance at the time of the crime. He was under that, I'm sorry, but it was not extreme. He's just a sick dog. Um, they weighed, independently weighed the evidence in the record, and they feel that the non-statutory circumstances found by the trial court deserve consideration. However, after consideration these circumstances, we are the opinion of the aggravating circumstances of the crime far outweighed everything else. After a review of the entire record, the court is convinced that Thomas Warren Weisenhant received a fair trial, his sentence to death by electrocution for the murder of Cheryl Lynn Payton is due to be affirmed. And it was a verb. And then... Let me just gaze over this um, habeas corpus. This death penalty case in which petitioner Thomas appeals that the district court's denial of his 28 USC 2254 petition for federal Habeas relief, Thomas raises four claims of this appeal, says counsel was ineffective at his 1981 guilt phase trial for failing to present his only defense of insanity. Two, the state failed to disclose evidence during the 1981 trial and a 1987 penalty phase trial. Three, the prosecutor's closing arguments at the 1981 trial was fundamentally unfair. And four, the trial judge's ex dealings with prosecutors prior to 1987 death penalty phase violated Thomas's due right process right to an impartial judge. We conclude that the district court properly denied the habeas relief and affirmed. And then it basically, you know, I told you about Sherilyn. So, you know, they basically were like, no, we already proved all that stuff out. Y'all ain't doing it. And this was a big case. Oof. Um, if you do want to know all of it, like I said, you can go to murderpedia.org. This is where I found all of my information on this. And last, the conclusion you know, how he filed, how Thomas filed the appeal seeking, you know, habeas corpus for, um, from his second conviction in the third death sentence in the 1987. We hold that Thomas received effective assistance of counsel at his 1981 trial because the counsel tried, counsel made a reasonable strategic decision not to present evidence of insanity. In addition, the FBI profile reports and a co-worker's statement were not material to either of the 1981 guilty phase trials where no evidence of insanity was present or to the 1987 penalty phase trial where abundant evidence of mental illness was presented. The prosecutor's closing argument that non-co-worker had testified that Thomas was insane 
did not misstate the evidence properly responded to the defendant's closing argument. Finally, the trial judge did not um, have any bias or anything against Thomas when it was signed in order prior to the 1987 trial granting Thomas motion for funds for a psychiatrist as Thomas was not entitled to relief of any of his claims. The judgment of the district court is affirmed. That is the case of Thomas. Tomorrow, I am bringing you down. We are going to be talking about a four-year-old boy. You guys all know where to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Just a Girl on True Crime. You can also send me a Gmail at Just a Girl on True Crime as well. I'll be talking to you guys later, and I hope you have a great night.